0: Now, very candidly, I'm very happy to turn the page and come to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation because at a time like this, we need to see a very wonderful picture and there's a wonderful one coming up before us. Eternity is unveiled here in chapter 21. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, a new era and the eternal abode of the Lamb's Bride, and we will be then new creations in Christ Jesus without the old nature that manifests itself so much today. Now we have the entrance here into eternity, and eternity is unveiled before us. And we have now the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem here in verses 1 and 2. Now, if I may adopt a popular aphorism of the day, it can truly be said that this chapter is out of this world. And it certainly is. It hasn't anything in the world to do with the earth, except the first part of it. And we do see the eternal abode of the church. What really is heaven? There's so much today that it's just sticky stuff and sentimental stuff. It's quite weepy when we talk about heaven. Well, heaven is a place, a very definite place. You'll have an address there. The name's going to be put on you when you wander around through eternity into outer space because you might get lost. And Some angel will have to bring you home, and you'll have a home. Now, as the long vista of eternity is before us in this chapter, we've moved not only from time to eternity, but to a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem greet us. And the redeemed have previously received glorified bodies like Christ. All things have become new. And a new universe suggests new methods and approaches to life. New laws will regulate The new universe, the entire lifestyle will change. And here are some of the changes that are suggested by these next two chapters, and I've listed here six of them. Number one, there will be the total absence of sin and temptation and testing in the new creation. This in itself makes a radical difference. And then the second, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven does not mean another satellite for the earth, but rather the earth and all of the new creation with all of the galactic systems will revolve about the new Jerusalem because it's the dwelling place of God and of Christ. And then the third radical change, the law of gravity as we know it will be radically revised. There will be traffic between the new Jerusalem and the earth. Now, I do not think the earth dwellers, those saved in the Old Testament and in the Great Tribulation period and in the Millennial period, are going to be able to leave this earth. But the church has already left the earth, and its dwelling place is the new Jerusalem. And I believe that we'll have entirely different bodies, and the law of gravity will not affect us, that is, the law of gravity of this earth or any other planet. Now, the fourth great change, there'll be no sun to give light, for God himself will supply it directly to the universe. There'll be the absence, therefore, of night, and there's no night there because we just won't need that time to rest because we've got new bodies. I'm looking forward to it, by the way. Now, the fifth, There will be no longer any sea on the earth. The sea occupies most of the earth's surface today. Approximately three-fourths of the total surface is water. Now, this denotes a revolution in life upon the earth. Just think of the parking space you're going to be able to have. And there will be no fish to eat. And apparently man will be a vegetarian even in the millennium and in eternity as he was in the Garden of Eden. Fruit is the only diet of the eternal man. And you get that, by the way, when you turn over to the 22nd chapter of Revelation, and we'll be picking that up. It says, "...in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits." Well, I'll not go into that now, but the point is, man's diet apparently is going to change. Then the sixth is the presence of Christ and God, together with the throne of God made visible, and it ushers in a new day for man and the new creation. Now, let me come to the text itself. And we have here in the first two verses a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. He says, "...and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. This is quite interesting. John says, I saw. And that's the off repeated statement of John to remind us that he was a spectator to all of these scenes. In other words, he's a witness to the panoramic final scene which ushers in eternity here. That's very important. Now, the Scripture clearly teaches that this present order of creation is to pass away in order to make room for a new heaven and a new earth. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, "...Heaven and earth shall pass away." The old creation was made for the first Adam, and the last Adam has a new creation for his new creatures. Isaiah said, "...For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall be remembered, nor come to mind." And again in 66:22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Now, God had promised Abraham a land forever and David a throne forever. And Daniel prophesied of a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The new earth will see the total fulfillment of these prophecies. And listen to Hebrews 11. Here in the faith of the Old Testament worthies, verse 13, "...these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and they were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that there were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned, but now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. Heavenly doesn't mean they're going to heaven. It means heaven's coming to this earth. And that's what we mean in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's coming. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, again, in Second Peter 3.13... "...nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness." Now, Peter has something to say about that in the third chapter. Verse 7, "...but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men." Verse 10, "...but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness?" I have a book on that third chapter of Second Peter called Three Worlds in One. Now, the chief characteristic of the new earth, as we've suggested, is the absence of the sea. Now, this would automatically change the climate, the atmosphere, and living conditions. It's impossible for the human mind to comprehend the great transformations which will take place in a new creation. The sea in the past has been a barrier and also a border for mankind, which in some cases it's been good and in others bad. Also, the sea was an instrument of judgment at the time of the flood. However, by the disappearance of the sea, the population of the earth can be doubled again and again because of the increase of the land's surface. Now, in verse 2 I read, "...and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God." made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. Now we come to the part that should interest us. This is where we're going to live. When you talk about going to heaven, what do you think about? It's, to most people, just a beautiful isle of somewhere. Well, it's a definite place. It's a city called the New Jerusalem. It's a planet within itself. And we're going to see that as we get into this section. This is a great section. And very candidly, Very little is said in Scripture about heaven, but here it is. And that's the reason this ought to be important to us. How'd you like to spend Christmas in heaven? It will be better in Southern California, I know that. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride. Now, I can't think of a lovely description of this than that. A bride, made ready as a bride. This new Jerusalem shouldn't be identified, by the way, with the old Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem down here. Now, let me come back to this. I say I can't think of a lovelier figure, and the reason is this. It's been my privilege in a long pastorate to have married several hundred couples that have stood before me. And I've made this statement many times, I have never seen an ugly bride. They're always lovely. At the wedding, first thing that happens is that after they get through the solos, there comes the wedding march, and here comes the preacher. I walk out from the side, and then there comes the best man and the bridegroom. And nobody pays any attention to him except his mama. She's sitting down, and she smiles at him. She thinks he's wonderful, but nobody else looks at him. But in a minute, here comes the bride-to-be. And I tell you, everybody stands up and looks at her. And I've never yet seen an ugly bride. My wife, when I used to return from a wedding that she didn't attend, she'd always ask me the question, was the bride beautiful? And I'd always say, yes. Never seen an ugly one. Don't think I'm just a doting old man when I say that. I have seen some of these brides before they got married, and I wondered whether they're going to be able to make it. And then I've seen them after the wedding. And I tell you, I wondered if it was the same girl who came down there. But you know, God gives to them at that time a radiance and a beauty. And to me, that's a thrilling moment when you look down the aisle and especially for the bridegroom and see the one that you're going to make your own. She's yours. What a picture. And as I say, I never seen an ugly one yet. God seems for that moment to just transform every girl into just a lovely bride at that time. And I think the reason he does it is because the New Jerusalem, where we're going to live, is like a bride adorned for her husband. And what a picture that we have here. May I say that this is the first time we get a glimpse of it. I think it's been around. The Lord Jesus said He was going 1,900 years ago to prepare a place for you. And He's been preparing this home for His bride, the church. And it's a thing of beauty. We're going to see it in this chapter. He gives the description of it. We're going to have a very happy holiday. (laughs) We're not thinking of Bethlehem, but thinking of the New Jerusalem, the place toward which the church is moving today. We're pilgrims and strangers down here now. Well, we got a permanent home over there. Now, this new Jerusalem is the habitation, the eternal home that is prepared for the church. The Lord Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. And you couldn't have a more lovely and more appropriate picture given because the church, as we saw at the beginning of the millennial period, and actually before he came to the earth, we saw the marriage of the Lamb, and the bride is the church. And that brings us to this passage here now, and it actually is the fulfillment, of what Paul wrote in talking to the Ephesians. He says in the 5th chapter, beginning at verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And I think that there will be At the judgment seat of Christ, the straightening out and the judging of believers. Everything will have to be straightened out in their lives. Everything that's wrong will have to be corrected, and all sin will be dealt with there. Rewards will be given out. And He's going to do something else. He's going to cleanse the church there with the Word. You know, the Word of God is a mighty cleansing agency and it is today, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, this is the picture we're getting here in Revelation 21, that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down "...from God out of heaven, and adorned as a bride for the husband." You see, the marriage took place before the millennium, and here we're after the millennium now, and this has sure been a long honeymoon, hasn't it? Well, I think it's one that's going to go on into eternity. Now, Paul continues to talk about this marvelous relationship of Christ and the church, and comparing it to human marriage down here. Verse 28, "...so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the Church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, this idea that it is a mystery is now being opened up to us, you see. The marriage relationship is the most beautiful and wonderful relationship And it's the oldest ceremony that God has instituted for man is marriage. It goes right back into the very Garden of Eden, to the very beginning. And it's all important. But it's such a profound mystery that even with all these marriage counselors today and all the books they've written, may I say, I don't think they've really touched the fringe of how wonderful Marriage could be for believers. And by the way, Paul is talking here not only to believers, but those that are filled with the Spirit. All of these instructions are for Spirit-filled believers here. It's not given to the lost world at all. And it's not given to the average believer. It's given, he says, at the beginning of this section, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the only commandment that you required to do something about the Holy Spirit. Now, we find here that there's something that is difficult to understand, and this gives us another sidelight here on marriage. Now, the wife is the same flesh as the man. Somebody says, how can that be? Well, have you ever seen a child, a beautiful child that looked like the mother and had a mean disposition like the Father? Well, that's where they come together. That's where they're one flesh. But listen, it's deeper than that. When a man loves his wife, he actually loves himself. And that's true of her. When she loves the husband, she's actually loving herself. And you can't have it any more intimate than that. It's perfect nonsense today if... I injure my foot. I actually don't ignore it. I do all I can to doctor it. I go to the doctor, and I have it maybe put into a cast, and it's all maybe not very pretty, and I'd like to leave my foot at home, but it's part of me. Well, my wife is part of me. She's my flesh. We're the same flesh. That's so difficult today But that's how intimate it is, and that takes us back, of course, to creation. Now, I can't go into detail today, but you have here in the second chapter of Genesis. Let me just read the the last three verses. And Adam said, "...this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman." because she was taken out a man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And it says they both were naked, the man and wife, and were not ashamed. Now, the important thing is about this matter that they were naked, they knew each other. It was an intimate and a very personal relationship. And my feeling today is that one of the great problems in marriage is, especially after a couple gets married, is that they have their first fight and she turns over maybe in bed and he is in a huff and he turns over or gets up and goes to the sofa and lies there. Then they wonder why there's disintegration in the marriage relationship. Well, listen When that foot gets sick, you don't ignore it. You don't get angry with it, and you don't kick with it. If you do, you're in deeper trouble. The thing that you're to do with the flesh is to do everything you can, doctor it, and try to get it well again. And that's the reason that young couples ought never to have a squabble without sitting down and talking things over. And I, very frankly, think that the wife ought to be very frank with her husband, tell him everything, how she feels, how he offends her, and what she thinks wrong. And he ought to do the same thing. You see, they're the same flesh. They are one. They've been brought together in this very intimate, this very wonderful relationship where a man leaves his family, his father and his mother and brother brothers and sisters where they've all just had a close relationship, and that has ended now. And he has now been joined to a woman, and they are one flesh. They've started a new creation, if you please. And that is what the marriage relation should be. And how wonderful it is to see a family where a man and his wife just don't have anything that is between them. She knows him like a book, and he knows her like a book. They just know each other, and they love each other. Now, until that kind of a relationship is established, my friend, you're going to have trouble in the marriage relationship because God made us that way. In other words, marriage is more than arrangement to live together and sleep together. When a man chooses a wife, and a wife accepts a husband— be sure that you understand that you're one flesh, and you wouldn't hurt yourself willingly for anything in the world. Oh, if we could only get that over. Now, this is a great mystery, but he says, I'm talking about Christ in the church, and here it is in heaven. We're going to be like him, we're told. It says, Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We're going to have glorified flesh like he's got. We're going to be one with him. We're part of his body. And we're going to be joined to him. And he said that I go to prepare this place that where I am, there ye may be also. That we may be with him throughout eternity. That, my friend, is going to be the most glorious thing. And as far as I know, no other creature, including the angels of heaven, are going to have that personal and intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be the most glorious day. And you talk about celebrating Christmas. My, we're going to celebrate throughout eternity the very fact that we are with him and that we've been joined to him. Now, I must move on here, because this is a very wonderful section that we're looking at here. And I want to read now verses 3 and 4. And I must read them in my translation, which I don't recommend. And someone has asked me, in fact, they said, you don't seem to approve of any of these new translations. May I say to you, you can say that again. I don't. My feeling is that most of them, in fact, all of them, are bland, flavorless mediocrity. And I don't like that to replace the pungency of genius that's in the authorized version. And don't tell me you can't understand it. It's just simply because you don't study it. You don't read the Bible like you read the funny paper. Don't misunderstand me. I read the funny paper. However, it's not funny anymore. They always got something complicated going, and I try to pass those by. But I love cartoons that give you a good laugh. But when you're reading the Bible, you're reading God's Word, and that's the reason it should be different. Now, I'm not a scholar enough. I've had nine years of Greek. I taught it two years, but I don't feel capable of translating. And I find some of these today that are on these committees that are doing translation, why, they do not know enough Greek to read the menu in a Greek restaurant in Athens. Now, let me read. And I heard a great voice out of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, skene it is, the tent, of God is with men and he shall tabernacle with them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. The first things are passed away." Now, here is something that's going to be quite wonderful. The tent of God is with man. What is the tent? Well, we're told the Word was made flesh and pitched his tent here among us. That's what John says in the first chapter of his Gospel, verse 14. That flesh was crucified on the cross, and he was raised in the glorified body. And we're going to have that kind of of a body, and we're going to live with him in the New Jerusalem. And we're going to get a picture of that New Jerusalem later on. The golden streets are not really important. What does it make to you what kind of asphalt you walk on down here? It's important to know the psychological and spiritual values that are going to be there. Now, we're told... We shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, be their God. Now, will you notice here, this is a very wonderful thing that we're told here, and that is certain things that certainly are prominent today are going to be removed. Do you notice what he says here? First of all, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes.'" A columnist, years ago, wrote, For every light that burns on Broadway, there is a broken heart. Well, you can say that of Hollywood out here today. And when you go up and look at that great blanket of light, when you go up into the Hollywood hills, which I've done several times, and look down on that blanket of light, said to my wife once, For every light down there, there is a broken heart. And today, on this day, there's many a sad and lonely person. Now, in the New Jerusalem, there are not going to be any more tears, my friends. And that's going to be a radical change, let me tell you. And there's not going to be any more death. That's going to be a very marvelous improvement, my While we have been on this program today, there have been several funeral processions, dying all the time. It's a continual march to the cemetery. And this earth is nothing in the world but a cemetery. An engineer that had, in the early days, a great deal to do with planning and plotting these great freeways that go across the country today, the divided highways and all of that. I asked him one time, I said, is it getting over the mountains or going down through the valleys across in the rivers? That's the big problem for you. He says, the big problem is missing cemeteries. I never thought of that one. But this earth is a great cemetery, but all of that's going to stop. There will be no burying ground in the new Jerusalem. The undertaker will be out of business, and even the doctors are going to be out of business because... There's not going to be there any crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And then he says in verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, he says he's going to make all things new. Now, that's more meaningful to me than anything else. I do not know about you. But I have never really been satisfied with this life. I found myself frustrated. I found myself hemmed in. I've never been able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I've never been the man I wanted to be. I've never been the husband I wanted to be. I've never been the father I've wanted to be. And I've never preached the sermon that I've wanted to preach. I just don't seem to have arrived. And all of the accomplishments seems to have a blot on them. And he says to me, as he says to you, I'm going to make all things new. You're going to be able to start over again. Well, I'm waiting for this day when all things are going to be new and I can start over. Have you ever stopped to think about the potential of starting out all new again, learning all over again, and never ceasing, just go on into eternity. Oh, the potential and capability of man. You remember, yonder at the Tower of Babel, God says, I better go down. Nothing will be with help from man. Man can go to the moon. It was very foolish for some even scientists and preachers to say that man couldn't go to the moon. I think he's going farther than that. Man is a clever being that God has made. But, oh, the potential. Death ends it all for him down here, but with eternity ahead of him. Oh, the prospect. My friend, I'd love to start on that trip today, wouldn't you? It would be a glorious holiday to start to this city where he is and where we will be with him through eternity. Now, this is a very important section here, as we saw in the first part last time that the glorious prospect of all things made new, and we can start over, and there will never be an end to our growth. You remember it says, "...of the increase of his kingdom." There is no end. There is a constant growth and development. And just think of the prospect of that for the future. Now, friends, I'll begin reading at verse 6 through verse 7 and I'm reading from my translation. And he said unto me, "They are come to pass, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be God unto him, and he shall be the Son to me. Now, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and that identifies the speaker as the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was identified like that in the first chapter of this book. Now, believers in their new bodies will thirst after God and the things of God, and they'll be satisfied here. We're told he'll give unto him, that is a thirst, of the fountain of the water of life. And you remember he had said, In Matthew 5, 6, "...blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled." All believers are overcomers by faith. He that overcometh shall inherit these things. Well, all believers are overcomers because of faith. In 1 John 5, 4, I read, "...for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world." even our faith and all the sons of god became sons through faith in christ but as many as received him to them gave he the exousion power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name john 1:12 and they inherit all things because this was promised to the sons of god in romans 8:16 and 17 i read The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And then here is an interesting expression. I will be God unto him, and he shall be the Son to me. Now, the Son to me is in the Greek moe ho weos, a very unusual expression. In fact, Vincent calls attention to the fact that this is the only place in John's writing where a believer is said to be a son, a weos, that is, in relationship with God, and God says it. And here he says it. Believers in the church are one of the peoples of God, but they are moa. They are the sons of God in a unique, and glorious fashion. And as we've seen before, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now I read verse 8, But for the fearful and unbelieving and defiled with abominations and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers, and adulterous, and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, there are several amazing features about this verse here. First of all, the creation of the new heavens and a new earth did not affect or change the status of the lake of fire and of the lost. They are going into eternity just that way. In the second place, there's no possibility of sin which made man become fearful, unbelieving, and lies and murders, and all the rest, ever breaking over the barrier into the new heavens and the new earth. Sin and its potential are forever shut out of the new creation. And finally, the lake of fire is eternal, for it's a second death, and there is no third resurrection. It's eternal separation from God that we have here, and there's nothing as fearful and frightful as that. Now, will you notice, I come to verse 9, and I'm going to turn to a message that I have in the back of the second volume on the shape of things to come, because we are now given a physical description of the new Jerusalem. and. We are told here in verse 9, "...Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife." Now, the appearance of this city is the quintessence of beauty, refined loveliness, and uncontrolled joy. Lofty language describes her merits, and descriptive vocabulary is exhausted in painting her portrait. And the contemplation of her coming glory... Is a spiritual tonic for those who grow weary on the pilgrim journey down here. The New Jerusalem is really a post millennial city, and that sounds strange coming from me, I'm sure, for she does not come into view until the end of the millennium and the beginning of eternity. Now, this city was evidently in the mind of Christ when He said, I go to prepare a place for you, but the curtain does not rise upon. The scene of the heavenly city until earth's drama has reached a satisfactory conclusion. Earth's sorrow is not hushed until the endless ages begin. Now, the new Jerusalem will be to eternity what the earthly Jerusalem is to the millennium. The earthly Jerusalem does not pass away, but it takes second place in eternity. Righteousness reigns in Jerusalem. It will dwell In the new Jerusalem, imperfection and rebellion exist even in the millennial Jerusalem. Perfection and the absence of sin will identify the heavenly city. Just as a king's queen is of more importance than the place of his government, thus the new Jerusalem transcends the city of earth. This will cast no reflection on the earthly city nor will it cause her inward pain. She can say in the spirit of John the Baptist, "'She that hath the bridegroom is the bride.'" Now, will you notice here, the New Jerusalem is the eternal abode of the church. The New Jerusalem is the home of the church. It's the hometown of the church. This is the city toward which the church is journeying as she pitches her tent in that direction. Now, we're to look at this home, and we're given the architect's blueprint here in this 21st chapter. "'Come hither,' he says, "'I'll show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife.'" Now, what follows is a description of the city. We have seen the psychological or the spiritual aspects of it that are wonderful, and to me, more wonderful than these physical. But believe me, these are worth contemplating. Now, we must pause here to consider the relationship of the city to the citizens, the city proper to the church. Certainly we are not to infer that the empty city without the citizens is the bride. The citizens are identified with the city in the next chapter. We are told about the citizens that are there. Those outside are identified here in chapter twenty-one, eight, as disfranchised. Although a distinction between the bride and the city needs to be maintained, it's the intent of the writer to consider them together. Now, this passage is a description of the adornments which reveal something of the love and worth that the bridegroom has conferred upon his bride. Now, we read in verse 10, that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Now, certainly this city has no counterpart among earth cities. They're built upon an earthly foundation, and they come up from the bottom. This city comes down out of heaven. She originates in heaven, and God is her architect, that is, the Lord Jesus, and he's the builder. Although the city comes down out of heaven, there's no suggestion that she comes down to the earth. The earthly city never goes to heaven. And the heavenly city never comes to earth. Just how far down the city descends is a matter of speculation. Now, this has led to extreme views in interpreting the New Jerusalem. At the very beginning, Ebionism, one of the first heresies, went to the extreme in applying this whole passage concerning the New Jerusalem to the earthly Jerusalem. Now, the Gnostics, another early heresy, They went to the other extremity in spiritualizing the passage to make it refer to heaven. Now, many modernisms apply the new Jerusalem to themselves and set it up on earth at the geographic location of their choice. Now, liberal theologians and our millenarians have left the city in heaven in spite of the scriptural statement that it comes down out of heaven. Two facts are evident from this passage. It comes down out of heaven, and it is not stated that it comes to the earth. Now, the passage of Scripture leaves the city hanging in midair. Now, that's the dilemma that many seek to avoid. But why not leave the city in midair? Is there anything in Congress about a civilization out yonder in space on a new planet? The new Jerusalem will either become another satellite to the earth, or what's more probable, and I think is true, the earth will become a satellite to the new Jerusalem as well as the rest of the new creation. This chapter indicates that the city will be the center of all things. All activity and glory revolve about this city. God will be there. It will be His headquarters, and His universe is theocentric, that is, God-centered. "...the new Jerusalem is therefore worthy to merit such a preeminent position for eternity." Now, let me read verse 11. "...having the glory of God in her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal." Now, Paul instructs the believers to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 2. Now, this hope will be realized in the holy city." Man in sin has never witnessed the revelation of the glory of God. Now, the experience of Israel in the wilderness taught them that each time there was rebellion in the camp, the glory of God appeared in judgment. But the manifestation of God's glory strikes terror to a sinful heart. Well, what glorious anticipation to be able to behold His glory when standing clothed in the righteousness of Christ! Two wonderful facts make this city the manifestation of the fullness of God's glory. The presence of God makes the city the source of glory for the universe. Every blessing radiates from this city. And second, the presence of the saints. Do not forbid the manifestation of the glory of God. Sin caused God to remove his glory from man's presence. In this city, all that's past. Redeem man. Dwelling with God in a city, having the glory of God, is the grand goal, which is worthy of God. This city reveals the high purpose of God in the church, which is to bring many sons to glory. Now, the word translated light here, foster, is the word for source of light. The city is a light giver. It does not reflect light as the moon, nor does it generate light by physical combustion like the sun, but it originates light and is the source of light. For the presence of God and Christ give explanation to this as he declared, I am the light, I'm the light of the world, and God is light. The whole city is like a precious gem. This gem is likened unto a jasper stone." Now, the modern jasper is multicolored quartz stone, and the stone referred to here cannot be that, for this stone is not opaque. Jasper is a transliteration of the word iaspis, which is of Semitic origin, and Moffat suggests that iaspis could mean the modern opal, diamond, or popaz. And the stone is transparent and gleaming, which suggests one of these stones most likely is the diamond. The diamond seems to fit the description better than any other stone known to man. And the similarity of the Hebrew word for crystal in Ezekiel 1.22 to the Hebrew word for ice helps to strengthen the view. The New Jerusalem is a diamond in a gold mounting. This city is the engagement ring of the bride. In fact, it's the wedding ring. It's the symbol of the betrothal and wedding of the church to Christ. Now, the wall and the gates. Notice here, I'm reading. The wall of a city is for protection. And I probably ought to go back and read for you verses 12 through 16. And it had a wall, great and high, had twelve gates, and the gates were... Twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city." and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof, and the city lie four square, and the length is as large as the bread, and he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the bread and the height of it are equal. Now we're coming to this physical description. And of course, I'm not going to have the opportunity to get into all of the details today. But the wall of the city is for protection. A walled city is a safe city. Now, that new Jerusalem is safe, and those who dwell therein dwell in safety. The heavenly Salem will enjoy the fruits of safety and peace, made up of those who found peace with God on earth, and she will experience the fullness of peace throughout eternity. The walls are a sign that this city has achieved the full meaning of her name, peace. The walls are 144 cubits in height, or about 216 feet. Herodotus gives the estimation for the walls of ancient Babylon as 50 cubits high and 200 cubits high. Now, these walls were built to make the city impregnable. The great height of the walls of the New Jerusalem are but commensurate with the great size of the city. "...beauty rather than protection is the motive and design. It is a wall with jasper built into it, and is generally designated a jasper wall. The hardest of substances and the most beautiful gem constitute the exterior of this city." Now, there are twelve gates to the city, three gates on each side. On each gate is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Now, this is very striking and suggests immediately the order of the children of Israel about the tabernacle. The tribe of Levi, as the priesthood, served in the tabernacle proper. Now, the New Jerusalem is a temple or tabernacle in one sense, for God is there with man. The church constitutes the priesthood who serve him constantly. They serve as such in the city and dwell there as I did about the tabernacle. Everything in eternity will face in toward this city, for God is there. The children of Israel on earth will enjoy the same relationship to the city that they did toward the wilderness tabernacle and later the city temple. This city will be a tabernacle to Israel." The children of Israel will be among the multitudes who come into this city to worship in eternity. They will come from the earth to bring their worship and glory. They will not dwell in the city any more than they dwelt in the tabernacle of old. Those who actually dwell there will be the priests who are the church. The church occupies the closer place to God in eternity, and the bride like John in the upper room reclines upon his breast. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? As the song of Solomon. Well, she's the bride, and she's come up from the wilderness, which is this present world. But the twelve tribes of Israel will come up to the celestial city to worship, three tribes coming up on each of the four sides, and then they will return back to the earth after a period of worship. But the church will dwell in the new Jerusalem. Now, we'll go on with that next time. And until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, we are still talking about the new Jerusalem. And I don't think it's waste of time, although we are right at the end of the five-year program. We certainly ought to conclude it by looking at this home that we're all going to, people sing a great deal about heaven, they talk a great deal about heaven, but actually very few seem to know much about heaven. Well, let's face it, very little said about it in Scripture. But what is said, we ought to pay attention to it. It does make sense. Now, I'm going to begin reading at verse 12 of chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read my translation. I'm still sticking with it. I don't recommend it, not to anybody. Will you notice, speaking now of the New Jerusalem, it's having a great wall and high, having twelve large gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And names are written thereon, which are names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, the day spring, were three gates." and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that spoke with me had for a measure a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof, and the city lieth foursquare." And the length thereof is as great as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height thereof are equal. In other words, it's a cube. That is, these dimensions that are given are a cube. The shape of this city is really difficult to describe, I think, due largely to our inability to translate our concepts from a universe of time to the new creation of eternity. And in the message that I have at the end of the book of Revelation, the second volume on the subject, The Shape of Things to Come, I have something to say about this. And I'm going to turn now to that and pass on to you this information relative to the size and shape of the city, the foundations, you notice, and we'll come back to that if you'll just hold that for a minute. I want to notice the measurements and try, if I possibly can, by radio. This is the only place in this entire five-year program that I wish that I could do it on TV, because then I could illustrate it as I'd like to illustrate it. Will you notice the measurements of the city have given rise to all sorts of conceptions as to the size and shape of the city. I think, first of all, we ought to examine the size of the city. Twelve thousand furlongs are given as the measurement of each side and the height of it. And that's twelve thousand stadia in the text, which means about fifteen hundred miles. That's a big city. That city is bigger than Los Angeles. Remember that during the war, one of the jokes going around out here was that one of the pilots stationed in Alaska, his plane went down. He didn't know where he was. And way up in Alaska, and he started finding his way out, and he came to a sign. It said, Los Angeles, city limits. He said he knew that he'd made it, but it'd be a long ways to get in to the city. Well, that's true. That's true. Los Angeles covers a whole lot of territory. But this is a city that's 1,500 miles on each side and going up. How can you fit this in to our concept today? Now, this figure is corroborated by Dr. Seiss, Walter Scott, and others. "...the amplitude of the city is astonished when first considered, but is commensurate with the importance of the city." Certainly God, as creator, can never be accused of stinting, economizing, or doing things that reveal littleness. If you've noticed that you go down to the beach, he put plenty of sand down there, plenty of water in the ocean, made the mountains just about right, and rocks, he's just put them everywhere. Anything God does he sure does it in abundance. Now, with a lavish hand, he garnished the heavens with stellar bodies. Now, this city bears the trademark of its maker, the Lord Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, is the one who built this city. Now, consider with me the shape of the city. The city lieth four square. That's the simple declaration of Scripture. Now, that would seem to indicate that the city is a cube with 1,500 miles on a side. And Dr. Seiss sees it as a cube. Dr. Ironside saw it as a pyramid. And still others interpret these measurements in as many geometric figures that you can conceive. Now, it's difficult for us to conceive of either a cube or pyramid projected out in space. We're accustomed to think of a sphere that is... Uh, ball-shaped object hanging in space because that's the general shape of the heavenly bodies. And as far as we know, there are none out there in space that are square like a cube or like a pyramid. And cubes and pyramids are appropriate for earth's buildings, but they're impractical for space as spheres are impractical for earthly buildings. Yet it is definitely stated that the city is four-square. Now, I think the difficulty resolves when we think of the city as a cube within a crystal-clear sphere. And what you have are the inside measurements because I think of it as a big plastic ball. And when I used to illustrate it, I had a big plastic ball, and I had put in it a cube that touched all four corners. Well, more than that, the eight corners of a cube touching all of the sphere. And I think these are the measurements. In other words, it would give you a sphere in space. And this is not plain geometry, by the way. This is mathematics that I couldn't figure out. And so I went to my brother-in-law, who was a head of math department in Cleburne, Texas, when I lived there, and he figured it for me. And then I asked a man out here, an engineer, who worked on these modules that went out in space, and he came up with the same answer. And that would mean that with 1,500 miles of the cube inside of the sphere, why, it would mean that the circumference would be about 8,164 miles. Now, the diameter of the moon is about... 2,160 miles, and that of the New Jerusalem sphere is about 2,600 miles. Thus, the New Jerusalem will be about the size of the moon. In fact, it'll be larger, but it'll be a sphere as are the other heavenly bodies. And I personally believe that that is the picture that is given to us here, and one that I think we should pay attention to My thinking is that we live inside of this sphere, not on the outside. Now, here in the earth, we live on the outside, and that presents a few difficulties. The Lord had to make the law of gravitation to hold us on the earth, or we'd be flying out in space. Now, this one will be a city in which you walk just the opposite of the way you walk here. You walk on the outside, there you'll walk on the inside. Now, it is said that it's crystal clear. That is emphasized again and again. And the foundations are given to us of this city. And I think that probably I ought to pass on those to you. And I'm going to ask that you follow your text now, beginning with verse 17. He measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel, and the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Now, in other words, like clear plastic. And that means something. It means that from the inside, the light will be shining outside. But this city has twelve foundations and the name of the twelve apostles on them. And that's important now for us to see And I want to note that the city had 12 foundations, and the names of the 12 apostles are upon them. Now, the church today is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, that's what Paul said in Ephesians 2.20. Now, Christ committed the keys into the keeping of the apostles on the human level The church was in the hands of these twelve men. The book of Acts gives the order. You remember that Dr. Luke said the former treatise, Have I made oath, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Spirit had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, I do not Take Mattathias as the one who succeeded Judas, as many of you already know. I personally believe that it was Paul. Mattathias is never mentioned. And remember, Simon Peter had that election to elect Mattathias before the Holy Spirit came. I don't think he was in the will of God at all when he had that election. And you never hear of anything Matthias did, but you surely hear of Paul the apostle. And I think he's the one. Now, I think he's the one that succeeded. Now, to these twelve apostles were committed all the writings of the church. These men preached the first sermons, they organized the first churches, and they became the first martyrs. And it's not honoring to Scripture to attempt to minimize the importance of the twelve apostles. In a real sense, they were the foundation of the church. To them, the church shall be eternally grateful. And this is not to rob Christ of his place, for he is the chief cornerstone. But the church is built upon the foundation that the apostles laid. That's the important thing for us to do. Now, these twelve foundations not only have the names of the twelve apostles, but they're twelve different precious stones. The most beautiful and costly articles Known to man are precious stones. These stones express the human terms, the magnificence of the city. The superlative degree of gems is used to convey something of the glory of the city to those who now see through a glass darkly. We're going to see through it clearly someday. A close examination of these twelve stones in the foundation reveal a polychrome paragon of beauty. Varied hues and tints form a galaxy of rainbow colors. The stones are enumerated as followed. Now, I'm going to run through this list. I do not want to be wearisome, but this is important for us to see. Number one is the jasper. Iaspis is the Greek word. The color is clear. And as mentioned before, this is the diamond. It is crystal clear, a reflector of light and color. Dr. Seiss, in speaking of the New Jerusalem, describes it as clean and pure and bright as a transparent icicle in the sunshine. And then the second foundation is a sapphire. That color is blue. The stone occurs in Exodus twenty-four ten as the foundation of God, and that was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were... The body of heaven in his clearness. Now, Moffat describes it as a blue stone. Pliny describes it as opaque with gold specks to which Petrie agrees. And then the third is Chalcedony. The color is greenish. It's an agate. Now, Pliny again describes it as a variety of emerald gathered on a mountain in Chalcedon. And Robson says possibly a green silicate of copper. Then the fourth stone is emerald, colors green. Roberson describes it as a green stone. And the fifth foundation is sardonyx, and the colors red. And Roberson describes it as white with layers of red. The sixth foundation is sardis, colors fiery red. And Pliny says that it is a red stone from Sardis. And sweet says that it's fiery red. And the seventh foundation is chrysolite. The color is golden yellow. Moffat assigns it a golden hue. Robinson says it is a golden color like our topaz. And then the eighth foundation is beryl. And the color is sea green. And Pliny says it's sea green. And it's like the emerald, says Robinson. And then the ninth foundation is topaz, the color... Is greenish-yellow. Robson calls it a golden-greenish stone. And the tenth stone is chrysoprasis, and the color is gold-green. A golden leek, a leek-colored gem, is the way Robinson describes it. And the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia lists it as sea-green. And then the eleventh foundation is the jacinth, and the color is violet. It's the color of the hyacinth. And Pliny gives the colors of violet. And the amethyst is the 12th foundation, and the colors purple. Although the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia lists it as a ruby, Robson gives the colors purple. Now, the foundations here of the New Jerusalem are constructed of the flashing brilliance of rich and costly gems. Now, remember, on the inside is Jesus who, when he was here, was the light of the world, there he'll be the light of the universe. God the Father is there, and the light shining through that will light God's universe. And it just won't be, as they say out in space, it's dark black, and that the only colors on this little earth today. But wait do you see the new Jerusalem. And it's going to light up God's new heavens and new earth as they've never been lighted before. I think it's going to be the most breathtaking scene that you've ever seen. And this new Jerusalem is a planet, you see, that comes down from God out of heaven, and everything is going to revolve around it. And the light will come from the. It will be Jesus Christ, the light and power company then, and the light will shine out. And in all these brilliant and beautiful colors, I can't think of anything like this. And colors described to us today as dissected light, pass a ray of light through a prism, and it's broken up into three primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. And from these three primary colors come all colors and shades of colors. Light is a requirement for color. Where there's no light, there's no color. Objects of color reveal color, To the eye, because of their ability to absorb or reject light rays. A red stone absorbs all the color rays except red. It rejects or throws back to the eye the red ray, which gives the color of red. Now, the New Jerusalem is a city of light and a city of color. God is light, and he's there. The city is described as a jasper stone as clear as crystal. And all of this color will be coming out and flooding God's universe. And the new Jerusalem is there. The light shining from within through the jasper stone, acting as a prism, would give every color and shade of color in the rainbow, acting as a prism, but it would give every color and colors that you and I hadn't even thought of yet or couldn't even dream of. The new Jerusalem is a new planet. And it's inside a crystal ball. And that's where we're going to live. And the presence of the primary colors suggests that every shade and tint is reflected from this city. A rainbow that appears after a summer shower gives only a faint impression of the beauty in the coloring the city of light. Oh, what a glorious place this is. Now, I probably have upset you a great deal... And giving this type of interpretation, because as far as I know, I'm the only one that follows this. Now, of course, if you want to follow all these other commentators and expositors, you'd sure be in good company. But if you want a new look at the new Jerusalem, I think you'd like to go along with me. At least I hope so. Now, the new relationship. God dwelling with man, and I'm going to read here in verses 22 and 23 my own translation as I have followed that practice through this entire book. I'm reading, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof, and the city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine upon it, For the glory of God did lighten it, and the lamp thereof is the Lamb. Now, God lights the new creation directly by His presence. We called attention to that before without giving you the Scripture, but here it is. Not only that, but we should have called attention to the fact that there was in the new Jerusalem The street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. That's verse 21. And we were told at the beginning of that description that this city was transparent. That is the thing that gave me the lead and the key to believe that we live on the inside and everything is transparent. And it would mean that the light would shine from the inside out. And going through these different colored stones, every color known to man today, but many colors that our natural eyes can't see today, we'll be able to see them then with the new body that we shall have at that time. Now, we're told here that the street was a pure gold. Now, personally, I don't care about the asphalt of the place. I'm not really interested in that, but it's transparent glass. And there are two things there that impress me. It's not streets. This is not a city with many streets. And it is transparent. Even the street is the asphalt. It is gold, but transparent gold. Now, that leads me again to insist that what we're looking at is the inside of a globe. You couldn't have a city like we have today without having streets. You'd sure have a traffic jam with just one street. But this is just one street. And you see, this street, I would say, would begin at the four gates. And then it would start around in the circle, the globe. And then it would go all the way to the top, and then it would circle and just go back down. One would be an entrance, the other would be the exit, you see, so that you have here one street. And our viewpoint, I think, lends itself to the idea that it is one street. And the fact it's transparent gold means that the light, now it can shine out. There'll be nothing that would hinder it, not even the street, and frankly... The Golden Street is not what interests me about it at all, as we said before. But here that he said that he saw no temple in it, because the Lord God is the light of it. You see, God lights the new creation directly by his presence. After the entrance of sin into the old creation, you remember God withdrew his presence, and we're told, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Then God made use of the physical lights in His universe. He put them up like you put up street lights today, or lights in your home. However, in the new creation, sin is removed, and He becomes again the source of light. And today, the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world in a spiritual sense. He said in John 8:12, "...then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world." He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In the new creation, he is the direct physical as well as spiritual light. In the tabernacle, there was the golden lampstand, which is one of the finest pictures of Christ. In the new Jerusalem, he is the golden lampstand. The nations of the world will enter the holy city as the priests entered the holy place in the tabernacle for the purpose of worship. The nations of the earth, as well as Israel, will come to the new Jerusalem, as the high priest of old entered the Holy of Holies. Instead of the blood being brought, why, the Lamb is there in person. What a picture that we have there. Now, that leads me to move over here to say something more concerning a city and about the fact there's no temple there. Now, the temple which supplanted the tabernacle back in the nation Israel was an earthly enclosure for the Shekinah glory. It was a testimony to the presence of God and the presence also of sin. Where sin existed, God could only be approached by the ritual of the temple. However, in the New Jerusalem... Sin is no longer a reality. It's like a hideous nightmare, even locked out of the closet of memory. The actual presence of God with the redeemed eliminates the necessity for a temple, although the whole city may be thought of as a temple. Some have called attention to the fact that the New Jerusalem is the same shape as the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and temple where God dwelt, a perfect cube. And that's no accident, by the way. In the city of light, God is present. Sin is absent. Therefore, an edifice of a material substance is no longer necessary. The physical temple was a poor substitute for the person of God. The New Jerusalem possesses the genuine article, God in person. It is probably the first place where God will make a personal appearance before man, and what a glorious prospect this is. Now, the new Jerusalem is independent of the sun and moon for light and life. What a contrast to the earth today, which is utterly dependent upon the sun. The sun and moon may even be dependent upon the celestial city for power to transmit light, since the one who is the source of light and life dwells within the city." neither will light be furnished by the new Jerusalem power and light company. The one who is light will be there, and the effulgence of his glory will be manifested in the new Jerusalem unhindered. What a picture we have. Now we have a new center of the new creation, verses 24 through 27, and that will bring us through this Chapter here. Now I'll read again my own translation, and will you listen very carefully? And the nations shall walk amidst the light thereof. Doesn't say it'll be, they'll live there. They walk in the light of it. In other words, it'll give light to the earth instead of the sun and the moon. And the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Now that's my reason for saying that there will be a great deal of traffic commuting back and forth between the new Jerusalem and this earth down here. And not only will Israel come up there to worship, but the nations of the world that have entered eternity, they will also come up. That will not be their permanent abode, but they come up there to worship. And I believe that the church will be the priests at that time. we told today that we are a priesthood, a believers, now we are told something else. And the gates thereof shall in no wise be shut by day, for there shall be no night there. It's nonsense to say that the gates will not be shut at night because there's no night. So he says they'll not be shut by day. In other words, they're going to throw the key away and there'll be no danger. Gates were put there for a purpose, for a protection. When the gate of a city was closed, it meant an enemy was on the outside, and they were trying to keep him in that same position. But here we find, "...and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything unclean. Are he that maketh an abomination and a lie, but only they that are written..." in the Lamb's book of life. Now, God has apparently accomplished His original purpose with man, and that is fellowship. He now has a creature who is a free moral agent and who chooses to worship and serve Him eternally. There can be no night since the Lamb is the light, and He is eternally present. The gates are not for protection, as they were never closed. Rather, they are the badge or coat of arms of the church. If you notice that these gates are a pearl, and the pearl of great price has been purchased at a great price. You see, the pearl of great price in that parable that the Lord Jesus gave is that pearl is not Christ that the sinner buys. And, of course, what is the sinner to pay for Christ? He hasn't anything he can pay. It's the other way around. The fact of the matter is, the merchant man that bought that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the pearl is the church. And it's interesting that a pearl is formed by a grain of sand or something that gets into the life of a little mollusk, a oyster, something like that, and begins to put around it itself a secretion that before long makes a pearl. And the church has the name there. The pearl of great price is Marguerites. The church has a name. That's her name. It's Margaret. And the Lord Jesus Christ paid a great price to buy this pearl. This pearl was formed from his side. Someone said, I got into the heart of Christ through a spear wound. He was wounded, you see, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the church will be for display of his grace throughout eternity to his absolutely myriads of created intelligences. That's what we'll be. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. The ages to come, that is in eternity, you and I, will be there on display. And they'll look at Vernon McGee and they said, Do you see that fella? He deserved hell. And the Lord Jesus Christ died for him and paid a tremendous price. And he trusted Christ. That's all he had to offer. And now look what the Lord Jesus has done for him. He's made him fit for heaven, made him acceptable in the Beloved. And the church will be the Fairest jewel of all, when he makes up his jewels. You remember we saw back in Malachi, the third chapter, the day would come when he would make up his jewels. And when he does, why, the church is going to be on display. And that's the reason this will be the center of the new heavens and the new earth. And the Lamb's book of life contains the names of the redeemed of all ages, No one who was not redeemed by the blood of Christ will be permitted ever to enter the portals of the new Jerusalem. There is a great gulf fixed between the saved and the lost. And the greatest joy that will capture the heart of the redeemed will be that of abiding in the presence of Christ for eternity. For where I am, there ye may be also. That's what he said. And this is heaven, friend. To be with him. I said at the beginning of Revelation that it's all about Jesus Christ and it's about him. He's the centerpiece in God's universe. What a picture that we have here. Now, this city, let me say a word about it in closing because it's his city and it's the place he made. And our attention already has been directed to the fact that a redeemed remnant of Israel makes regular visits to this city of God. And in verse 24, another group is identified, as we saw, "...that the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. The kings of the earth do bring the glory and honor into it." These are the redeemed Gentile nations who will occupy the earth together with Israel for eternity. These nations, like Israel, do not belong to the church, for they are redeemed after the church is removed from the earth, before the church came into existence." They come as visitors to the city. They come as worshipers. And in Hebrews twelve twenty-two, we're told that there is also present an innumerable company of angels who evidently constitute the servant class. The city is cosmopolitan in character. All nationalities meet there. And the created intelligences of God walk the streets of the new Jerusalem. Among the multitudes there is not one who will bring defilement or sin. How superior is this city to even the Garden of Eden where the lie of Satan made an entrance for sin? No liar, liar will ever enter the portals of the heavenly Jerusalem. All dwellers and all tourists are not only redeemed from sin, but have lost their taste for sin. They come through the gates, which are never closed, and the enjoyment of this glorious city is not restricted to the church, although they are the only ones who dwell there. And I'd like to close chapter 21 with the words of Bernard of Cluny when he wrote these lovely lines, Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed. Beneath thy contemplation sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not what joys await me there, what radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. What a picture, and how inadequately I have dealt with it, friends. I even apologize for that. Oh, if I could only somehow or another lift you and myself up that we might get a glimpse of the glory of that city and the glory of the one who is its chief adornment, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and the glorious prospect and privilege of being with him throughout eternity. There's nothing to compare to it. Now, in chapter 22, we see the river of the water of life and the tree of life and the promise of Christ's return repeated and the final invitation of the Bible. First of all, we have the river of the water of life and the tree of life, verses 1 through 5. Then the promise of the return of Christ, verses 6 through 16. And then the final invitation and warning, verses 17 and 19. And the final promise and prayer, verses 20 and 21. Now, let's just get into this chapter a little ways. Now, this chapter brings us to the final scenes of this great book of scenic wonders. It likewise brings us to the end of the Word of God. God gives us His final words here, and because they're last words, they have a greater significance. We are brought to the end of man's journey. The path has been rugged, and many questions remain unanswered, and many problems remain unsolved. But man enters eternity and fellowship again with God, and there all will be answered. The Bible opens with God on the scene. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and it concludes with him on the scene and in full control of his own. He suffered, he paid a price, and he died. But the victory and the glory are his, and he is satisfied. Isaiah fifty three eleven puts it like this. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then we have first here in the first five verses the river "...of the water of life and the tree of life." I'm reading my translation the two first verses. "...He showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street thereof, and on this side of the river and on that was the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." Now, up to this chapter, the New Jerusalem seems to be all mineral and no vegetable. Its appearance is as the dazzling display of a fabulous jewelry stoa. But there is no soft grass to sit upon, no green trees to enjoy, and no water to drink or food to eat. However, here is introduced are the elements which add a rich softness to this city of elaborate beauty. There was a river in the first Eden, which branched into four rivers. Although there was abundance of water, it is not called the water of life. Eden was a garden of trees, among which was the tree of life. God kept the way open for man by the shedding of blood. Now, in the new Jerusalem, there is a river of the water of life, and the throne of God is the living fountain supplying an abundance of water. What a picture. The tree of life is a fruit tree, bearing 12 kinds of fruit each month. There is a continuous supply in abundance and variety. You see, in eternity, man will eat and drink. And that's a great relief to many of us, I'm sure. The menu is varied, but is restricted to fruits, as it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, in the New Jerusalem, there is this river of the water of life. And the throne of God is its living fountain supplying an abundance of water. And the tree of life is a fruit tree, as we indicated, bearing twelve kinds of fruit. And it would seem that man in eternity will return back to the diet that he had in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1:29 and 30, we're told, and God said, Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth when there is life. I've given every green herb for meat and it was so. Now, the twelve kinds of fruit would seem to suggest a varied diet, and there is a tendency to want to spiritualize all of this here and compare it to the fruits of the Spirit. Well, I have no objection to that personally. I rather would take that viewpoint myself, provided we hold to the literal interpretation, which I think you can do through this section here, although it does seem highly symbolic I think that we're dealing with that which is quite literal, for we're still talking about heaven. Now, we're told the leaves of the tree are beneficial. They have a medicinal value. Now, why is healing needed in a perfect universe is a very good question, and I would say it's a difficult problem to solve. I have made the suggestion that it's a sort of a first aid kit, which demonstrates the old adage, "...an ounce of prevention." is worth a pound to cure." In other words, here is this first aid kit. And I personally believe that the bodies of the earth-dwellers in eternity will be different than the bodies of the believers in the church who are to be like Christ. That is, their bodies will be like His. And I would say that the bodies of the earth-dwellers may need renewing from time to time. In other words, that may be the reason they come up not only to worship, but to be renewed, certainly spiritually. And I take this as a first aid kit here. At least the prevention is there. But the possibility of sin entering is just not there. Now, we are told here that definite thing, there shall be no curse anymore, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be therein. And his servant shall do him service, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. All there shall be night no more, and they need no light of lamp, neither light of sun, for the Lord God shall give them light. They shall reign forever and ever. Now the first creation was blighted by the curse of sin, and this old earth on which you and I live today bears many scar marks of the curse of sin. The new creation will never be marred by sin. Sin will never be permitted to enter even potentially. You see, it was potentially in the Garden of Eden in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the very presence of God and the Lamb will be adequate to prevent it. And it was during the absence of God in the Garden of Eden that the tempter came to our first parents. But we are told here that the throne of God and the Lamb are in the New Jerusalem. It's the GHQ, its headquarters, for God the Father and God the Son. And the notable absence of any reference to the Holy Spirit does need some explanation. You see, in the first creation, the Holy Spirit came after the fall to renovate and renew the blighted earth. The Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters. And he is the instrument today of regeneration in the heart and life of sinners. Now, there'll be no need of his work in the new creation in this connection. And therefore, the silence of God at this point is eloquent. "...and his servants shall do him service." Now, it reveals that heaven's not a place of unoccupied idleness, but a place of ceaseless activity. It will not be necessary to rest in order to give the body an opportunity to recuperate. And the word for service here is a very peculiar word. Dr. Vinson calls our attention to it that it came to be used by the Jews in a very special sense to denote the service rendered to Jehovah by the Israelites as his peculiar people. And you find that over in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 1, "...then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary." Then down in verse 6 of that same chapter, "...now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God." You see, this is going to be a peculiar service to God that you and I will perform in eternity. What it is, I don't know. I think that he may give us charge of universes. I think there will be ceaseless activity. There's no night, and man will at last fulfill his destiny and satisfy the desires of his heart. And man will at last see his face. This was the supreme desire voiced by Moses in the Old Testament and Philip in the New Testament. It's the highest objective for living. What divine satisfaction is going to be there? And each person will bear the name of Christ. Each will be like him, yet without disturbing his own peculiar personality. I've always said this facetiously. It could be true, but I've said that One of the things I want God to do, if he'll do it, is to let me teach the Bible. I want to attend the classes Paul teaches. Then I'd like to teach a group of people that were members of my churches that I served on earth but wouldn't come to the midweek Bible study. I've asked for them for one million years, and they won't think it's heaven for that first million years, I'll tell you that, because I'm really going to work them. They're going to have to catch up. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do say that we're all going to be busy there. Now, our attention is called in this section to the direct lighting of the new creation. There'll be no light holders such as the sun or reflectors such as the moon. God lights the universe by His presence, for God is light. Now, it's in eternity that the church will reign with Christ, Who knows but what he'll give to each saint a world or a solar system or a galactic system to operate. Remember that Adam was given dominion over the old creation on this earth. Now, verses 6 and 7, we see the promise of the return of Christ. Verses 6 through 16. And he said unto me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, the important thing to note here is that he says, "...behold, I come quickly." And that means rapidly. And that is repeated again in verse 12 and then again in verse 20. Three times now at the end, "...behold, I come not shortly or immediately or soon even." But what he's saying is these events that we have been looking at in Revelation, beginning with chapter 4, take place in a period of not more than seven years, and most of them are confined to the last three and a half years. Now, the encouragement is... The Lord Jesus said, this is not going to be a long period. I'm coming shortly. I'll soon be there. And that's when you get to this period. We are not exactly accurate when we say the soon coming of Christ. And I'm sure I've used that a thousand times. But I don't think it's an accurate term at all. And it gives the wrong impression, by the way. Now, the Lord Jesus here puts his own seal upon this book. And the words are faithful and true. And I think it means that no man is to trifle with them, but spiritualizing them or reducing them to meaningless symbols. He's talking about reality. And you remember at the beginning of this book, there was a blessing pronounced upon those reading here. Now, in conclusion, the Lord Jesus repeats the blessing upon those who keep these words, you see. And that's the important thing. Now, in verses 8 through 11, and I read hurriedly, and I, John, am he that heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel that showed me these things. And he saith unto me, See, do it not. I am a fellow servant with thee, and with thy brethren the prophets, and with them that keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand." He that is unrighteous, let him do unrighteousness still. He that is filthy, let him be made filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him do righteousness still. And he that is holy, let him be made holy still. Now, this is tremendous. This is John's final and oft-repeated statement that he was both auditor and spectator to the scenes in this book. And this is the method that was put down at the very opening of the book. And this, therefore, is the first TV program John saw and John heard. Now, he was so impressed that his natural reaction was to fall down and worship the angel. And the simplicity and meekness of the angel here, it's impressive. Though the angels were created above man, this angel identifies himself as a fellow servant with John and the other prophets. He was merely a messenger to communicate God's word to man, and he directs all worship to God. Christ is the centerpiece to the book of Revelation. Don't lose sight of him. And he's told here not to seal this. Now, Daniel was told to seal his book. Why? Why? Well, the things that he mentioned, oh, is a long ways off. In fact, we haven't even got to the 70th week of Daniel yet. But now the book of Revelation, don't seal it because we are already in that church period in chapters 2 and 3 somewhere and where I don't know, but there seems to be a lot of folk today that seem to know more than I know, and that bothers me a great deal. You'll notice here something else. And this, I think, is the most frightful thing that's been said in this book, and we've had some strong statements. And it's, let him that's filthy be filthy still. May I say to you, the condition of the lost gets worse and worse in eternity until each becomes a monster of sin. And this thought is frightful. On the other hand, neither is the condition of the servant of God static. They will continue to grow in righteousness and holiness. Heaven is not static. Even in the millennium of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. What a glorious and engaging prospect this should be for the child of God. We shall have all eternity to grow and to know. And believe me, I'm going to need eternity to to learn something and how wonderful it'll be. Now, he says again here in verse 12, "...behold, I come quickly." My reward is with me to render to each man according as his work is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are they that wash their robes, in order that there shall be authority over the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city, without are the dogs and the sorcerers, fornicators, the murderers, the idolaters, and every one that loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright, the morning star. Now, the church should know this program of God, you see. Now, the angel is bearing a very personal word from Jesus, or else Jesus is breaking through and saying it personally. He promises that he's coming again. This is his personal declaration. No believer can doubt or deny this all-important and personal promise of the Lord Jesus. And he'll personally reward each believer individually, the church at the rapture, and Israel and the Gentiles at his return to set up his kingdom at the millennium. Little wonder that Paul could say, "'I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind I, reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus.'" And again the Lord Jesus asserts his deity here, "'I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last.'" The beginning and the end. He said that at the beginning of Revelation. He concludes it. And only blood-washed believers have authority over the tree of life and access to the holy city. Dogs come off rather badly in Scripture, as you've noted. We've talked about that before. They were scavengers down here in that day. And the term is used for Gentiles quite a few places, by the way. Now, the Lord Jesus had sent his angel with this very personal message, I, Jesus. And he takes the name of his Saviorhood, the name he received when he took upon himself humanity, the name that no man knows but himself. And you and I are going to spend eternity just centering on him, his person. And my friend, if you're not interested in Jesus today, I don't know why you'd want to go to heaven because that's all they're going to talk about up there. Don't going to talk about him. And he's called here the root and offspring of David. That connects him with the Old Testament. But he's the bright morning star to the church. And do you notice the bright morning star always appears at the darkest time of the night? And it appears and indicates that the sun will be coming up shortly. And in the Old Testament, it ended that the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. That's the Old Testament hope. But to us, he's the bright morning star and will come at a very dark moment. Now, we have the final invitation and warning. Here in verses 17 and 19, the Spirit and the Bride say, "'Come.'" That's the church. The invitation goes out today. He that heareth, let him say, come. And he that is athirst, let him come. This is a twofold invitation, an invitation to Christ to come, an invitation to sinners to come to Christ before he comes. He that will, let him take the water of life freely. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto them. God shall add the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city which are written in the book. Now, the Holy Spirit is in the world today, and he joins in the prayer of the church that says, Lord Jesus, come, come. The Holy Spirit is performing his work in the world today of convicting and converting man. We know that now in the five-year program of the Through the Bible ministry. He works through the Word and through the church, which proclaims his Word. And the invitation is to come, to man to take the water of life, everyone that thirsteth, Let him come without money and without price. And Jesus stood and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That's the invitation that goes out today. And if you are tired of drinking at the cesspools of this world, he invites you to come. What an invitation this is, to come to him. Now, the final promise and prayer. Verse 20 and 21. He who testifieth these things saith, yea, I come quickly. Not soon, but when these things begin to come to pass, he's even at the door then. Come, Lord Jesus. And that should be the prayer of every believer today. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all his saints. And we sure need plenty of the grace of God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see."